Let's talk about schools where almost nobody can read and that there is a good solution and we're not talking about it. And also, why are so many students ditching college to go to trade programs? We're going to talk about it today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam, a nonprofit network of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Ravi, good day. How you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm out here in Carmel Valley, California. Beautiful part of the country. Yeah, it's tough for you. I feel for you, man. <laughs> By the way, you were in Vegas last week, from what I understand, so you shouldn't be one to talk. Great city of Las Vegas. But I was here for a wedding this weekend and I've got business to attend to later in the week. So I figured I would just stay here instead of flying back and forth across the country. It's a great place to have a wedding. So congratulations to whoever you went to see there. Hey, on a not related note at all, but I just at the outset, I know people like, you know, oh, get to the, the heart of the show. But hey, how about Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon on the same day? They say they parted ways. I love how when you're so privileged that you don't get fired, you just part ways. The problem with this language around parting ways instead of getting fired is that when you truly do part ways, it sounds like you get fired. You know, <laughs> like if you if you're like, "Hey, like I I'm moving on to something else." It makes it sound like you got fired. I actually when I stepped down from Republic schools, I gave a year's notice to my board mm. and we wrapped the whole process up, picked a new person, and I announced it in like a, via an email that went into an article in Tennessee. And, and of course, the local school board members then accused me of being fired. And I had to threaten to sue them to get them to stop saying it, even though it was like the most orchestrated exit of all time. And that stuff pisses you off because it's like you're always like, oh, what are people going to think about? It? I'm leaving, you know. So I think when we fire people, Chris, hot take, we should just say we fired them instead of saying parting ways. Or we should say... Conscious uncoupling. Just use the Gwyneth Paltrow language around it. Well, I think it's big in media world. I think it's a big deal. It tells me that at the end of the day, money matters. So for Tucker Carlson's standpoint, uh, he's one of the biggest draws over there. Who would ever imagine that you would drop your golden goose, like your biggest draw? It's the most watched news program ever. But, you know, the Dominion lawsuit costs quite a bit of money. <laughs> yeah, it, obviously probably connected in some way. I'd be interested to see the background story there. The Don Lemon thing is not so, totally surprising, but, mm -hmm. you know, maybe this is the day that you know, people in media should be concerned you know, it's, we're only midway through this as we're recording this on Monday, April 24th. Chris, by the way, you and I need to have a conversation afterwards about your role here at the branch. No, I'm kidding. Should we part ways? I'll just say a couple of bit. Let's have a sidebar later about your future here at the branch. No, I'm kidding. Your job is safe here, Chris. All right. Well, what are we going to talk about today? I think we've got a particularly heavy on the substance episode today. I think this is after we talked about so much politics. I think we're overcorrecting this time. What do we got? Well, we're going to start off with this article that was in the New Jersey Education Report, which I'm connected to, by the way, had a hand in launching that particular platform, which I think is amazing. And it's about phonics. And, and reading. And this is something that they're talking about Newark District students exceedingly low levels of literacy, down to 3% of the third graders at a particular school are reading at grade level. And there's an aspect about this that we don't often talk about, which is there's a solution. And when I say we don't talk about it, insiders talk a lot about this, but I don't think the general public, when they hear about low test scores, they think a lot of other things. They think about 
you know, parenting or poverty or other things that are surrounding the child. They don't always think about the fact that the system itself could be doing things that are proven by science to work. And in this particular article, it's making the case that core knowledge, which refers to a curriculum that is knowledge rich, that gives kids the background knowledge that they need to understand the history, society, science, and culture enough that when they read something, it doesn't require them to decode everything. They, they actually have enough background knowledge about things. For instance, a bucket and a pail. For one kid who, who might read something about a pail or a bucket doesn't know the difference between the two, but somebody who is really well-read and has done enough of the classics, and they have seen multiple meanings for different words. So this is, comes at a time with core knowledge where there's been recent studies that show that it's been very helpful in helping third to sixth graders eliminate the achievement gap, by the way, which is something that we rarely can say. We think that poverty is so immovable that it's just a death sentence. So if you have a school that's full of poor kids, uh, especially poor kids of color, and you see low test scores, there's no more to this story, right? That's just kind of, that's the end of it. You just, I told you everything you need to know. It's really poor and it's a lot of kids of color. So of course the test scores are low. So, you know, you're an educator, you ran schools. I have my suspicions and my hunches about core knowledge being the panacea that people think it is because anything done poorly is something done poorly, right? So like you can call something the silver bullet if you want to, but when you read this and you click through and number one, you see the research that says that a lot of kids Made a, covered a lot of ground, got caught up by using core knowledge. I mean, what's it say for you? Does it make you a zealot? You know, it's funny. When I and I got a fellowship to start my first school from this organization called Building Excellent Schools, one of the first books they assigned to me was a book by Edie Hirsch, who is a big proponent of this idea of core knowledge. And to me, I think in a, in a way, one of the benefits I had of coming into education later in life than some other people and kind of starting a school with a totally blank piece of paper and just trying to take the assumptions as a given really didn't have an orthodoxy right now. I, I was taught an orthodoxy, but I kind of had no preconceptions other than my own experience. When people kind of laid out different options to me, which is what building excellent schools did, they kind of laid out three, even though we separate them into two options. One is a procedural kind of approach to, to teaching reading, which is like, how do you decode? How do you find the main idea? Like skills approach to reading as opposed to a content approach to reading, right? That's one approach. That's actually very common. It was in charter schools. I'm pretty sure it still is, which is why I find this debate fascinating as it kind of bridges the divide between traditional schools, charters, et cetera. The second approach is like this thing that's been criticized recently in podcasts like uh, Soul to Story, which is the balanced literacy approach, which is more like cultivating a love of reading and all that. That, to be honest, that never made sense to me. Like, I I, ne I couldn't even articulate what it is. It's like a religion. It's it's mysticism. Yeah. It's kind of like you'll, you'll learn by like, I don't know, like just mysticism. It'll just like come to you. <laughs> it just didn't make sense to me. I, certain aspects of it, I think, make some sense, but most of it was just a bunch of nonsense buzzwords. The third approach was this core knowledge approach, right? And when I was given these options, the core knowledge one made the most sense to me because as it was explained to me... The ability to comprehend is really the accumulation of context, right? So how do you, if you access the text, you need to know what people are talking about. You need to know the words that they're using, the idioms that they use to express things. And so like, to me, that was just like my very basic, like what is reading? Reading really is just being able to access as many contexts as possible. And so when I was given these three options, I, I was very much a core knowledge person. Now I did not implement a perfectly core knowledge curriculum. 
uh, across the schools. It's actually the kind of thing I would have done more forcefully from the get-go. I wish we could talk about like doing this requires a level of coordination across grade levels and significant shifts to even how we spend our school days that I think even some of the best charters haven't quite done yet. You know, it's interesting about the study. This is the thing, like you kind of laughed when I said that I have my reservations <laughs> uh, <laughs> and everybody has a silver bullet, right. just like everybody in LA has a screenplay in their back pocket and everybody in Nashville has a song. I did write a song once in Nashville, by the way. Did you? Yeah, yeah. It was for an ex-girlfriend to try to get an ex-girlfriend back. I wrote a song with a bunch of country singers and sang it to her. It worked, but then we broke up eventually. What? I am fascinated by this story. <laughs> we'll have to come back to it. So this is kind of the source of my skepticism is that core knowledge has people that are, are zealots for core knowledge. And I don't disagree with them. I believe that a background, having background information is helpful to people when you read a thing. If you read a bunch of science journals and you know nothing about science, it's going to make it harder for you to understand what you're reading. The more you do it, the more you read dissertations, the more you read any type of work, it starts to get easier and easier and easier to recognize what you're what you're reading, what you're talking about. So that makes a lot of sense to me. There's so much more that goes into Hirsch's philosophy, but he's been criticized over time, number one. Like just the idea of a core knowledge like begs the question of whose core which knowledge? Like, what are you defining as the thing that all kids need to read? And of course, when these folks start pulling out what they consider to be the things that all kids need to read, there's going to be lots of disagreement, starting with me. Yeah. Because they're definitely <laughs> not going to pick my library, the things that I think should be the canon for what I want my kids to know and read. The other thing is the study that they're hanging their hat on right now that, you know, Robert Pondicio from Fordham Institute. Your guy, your guy, Rob. Well, you know, my dude, Rob, my friend, Rob, who loves this stuff you know, so much because it's a very paternalistic colonist type of way of looking at young people of color that you need to go in and kind of fill their empty heads with like your kind of Western civilization stuff in a way. That's not entirely fair, but that's a big part of this. But this study that they're hanging their hat on, I always think that they extrapolate too much from too small of groups. So this was like 12 charter schools in Denver that they studied core knowledge in that showed lots of gains and the majority of the schools were middle and upper middle income. Several of the schools were the average income was like above $110,000 per family. So you're talking about, this is like that thing years ago when people used to say kids come to school missing like 30 million words or whatever. And it turns out that they did that study on 25 welfare families and 25 middle class families. And it was all done by observations and asking them questions by middle-class social workers. And that's where we get the idea that, you know, black kids come to school missing 30 million words, you know, compared to white folks, which anybody who's ever worked with black kids know that the one thing that they don't suffer from is missing words. They got words for you. They got lots of words. They may not be the ones you like, but they, they're not missing 30 million words. Anyways, that's my point here. They studied 12 schools. They were all charter schools. They were all in one place, Denver, and they weren't poor schools necessarily. They weren't the schools that, you know, the majority... Charter schools make up 7% of the American population. Rich charter schools make up even a smaller percentage of charter schools. And Denver, it's its own kind of animal. So I don't know what you think about that, but I would take issue with making big, broad, sweeping conclusions from that. Yeah, I agree that's a limited study. For the sort of wonks out there, it would be helpful to read the Annenberg you know, the Annenberg Institute did this study, they have like a really long explanation of the data set as they see it up until now. So if you read their 
their introduction. It's a very long document, but if you read their introduction, they go through how they see the study so far. And essentially what they say is there are other studies that seem to suggest that core knowledge is effective. And they, even in their own conclusions, say this is one point along the continuum and we think further study is important and they employ the federal government, among others, to study this more. And I think that's the right attitude towards all of this. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, mm-hmm. though, in looking at the kind of cross-tabs of the study, low-income schools in this study did do particularly well. I think one of them had gains large enough to eliminate the achievement gap altogether. But these are like, you know, we're talking about a small sample size here, and obviously there are many confounding variables potentially. I think one of the reasons why they used charters in the study was the lottery effect, like as we all know from these lottery studies, basically. It allows you to eliminate the parent motivation aspect of things. Because if the parent is motivated to like, basically if it's a random selection lottery, it weeds out the you know effect of a parent deciding to enroll their kid in one school versus another and makes it kind of random. I mean, they still signed up for that school. They didn't just go to their assigned school. So they did choose to become part of the lottery process, right? Yeah. I think what it's saying is like the people who are sorted into this school versus that school, meaning the two different options, not like the third option of not attending a charter, which is obviously where further further data is warranted. I think taking a step back though on the question of whose knowledge, like this is obviously a huge debate around this, is like who decides what the core knowledge is. I think there's a way of looking at this to say, all right, you could be critical of, and I don't know E.D. Hirsch, I don't remember what his like view on like what the core knowledge should be. I imagine given that he's probably, I think he's 90 something years old, like his view of what the core knowledge should be is probably quite different than you or I would think potentially. But putting that aside for a second, like I don't think we need to depend upon even the government to decide what the core knowledge is. I think if you accept the premise that, background knowledge context is like the key to unlocking text and being able to be literate in the society, then you as a school can decide, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm going to devote more time to social studies and science relative to like just these blanket reading blocks that we tend to do. And what I think social studies should be is going to be different than somebody else. And I might think it's the 1619 project. Well, they might think it's the 1776 project. And right now, (laughs) right now, these social studies tests are so easy in states that you have so much flexibility to do what you want. And the data here is pretty stark. So the Annenberg Institute in their write-up looks at just how much time we're spending for each subject per week. And so in the United States right now in public schools, we spend on reading and English language arts somewhere between 10 to 12 hours per week, math somewhere between five and six hours per week, science around 2.8 hours per week, and social studies 2.9 hours per week. So basically what they're saying is right now we're allocating a lot of time to this general literacy blocks, which tends to lend itself to a lack of cohesion when it comes to knowledge. So this day you might be reading Huck Finn, Mm -hmm, that day you might mm -hmm. be reading this other thing, but you're not systematically going through a, a series of knowledge around science and history and society and sports and all that kind of stuff. And I'm kind of with them on this. Like, I think we can all disagree about like, hey, should it be, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X instead of, you know, Huckleberry Finn or whatever. But I do think like having a like a strong background knowledge and having a systematic approach to it actually is really helpful to kids. Yeah, you know, I looked through their grade level stuff from first grade through sixth grade. Africa makes one appearance in all of what you're supposed to know about the world. The seed of civilization, the seed of humanity, the origins of the species, the origins of where we come from, the beginning of everything, the place that gave us libraries and math and study itself, gave us names for things and theorems, 
makes one appearance in its Egypt. And where though? The core knowledge curriculum? Mm -hmm. Okay. What is the core knowledge curriculum? I was going to ask you because I actually don't know. Is this like an outgrowth of Hirsch's work where they've created like a national set of standards in literacy? Is that essentially what that is? Well, they have readers, you know, that provide, that's one part of the curriculum is that they have readers that you can get, I think, I want to say you can almost get them for free. I'm not so sure about that. But, you know, they have readers, they have language arts, mathematics, music, science, visual arts. They even have them in different languages. And you can download the curriculum, which I think, you know, listen, I'm down for anybody that wants you to go and kind of like give you access to things. But this is just my point about the underlying theory when you say that generalized knowledge actually is helpful in getting kids to understand what they're reading, you still have to always go back to that question of what do you think is the stuff that's the most general or the most universal or the stuff that they really need to read. Someone has to put a canon together at some point. And I guess I'm just going to say after 400 years, I'm not really trustful of the canon. Other people making canonical decisions for my kids. You can make them for everybody else. Make them for your kids all you want because I know what you're going to study. You're going to study Greece and Rome. and The Gupta Empire. How come we don't know more about this Gupta Empire? I think this is like a pretty significant empire in world history. I just have questions as to why we don't teach it more in school. I remember being really excited that it was in the textbooks, and then we just never talked about it in school. Let's talk about this for a second. Why were you excited that it was in in any book? Well, and part of it is tongue-in-cheek, it's my name. That's about it. That's the sum total of the depth of my... <laughs> but look, we'll, we'll bring this empire back. <laughs> You know, starting by taking over the podcasting industry. That's the key to world domination. I was about to say, I'm part of the Gupta Empire. You know, like right now we're doing a show on the Gupta Empire. So anyways, I don't know that there's a ton to say here, except for I do think that it should raise eyebrows anytime that we see that there are serious gains made by any group of students who America has written off as being not able to learn, not capable of learning. We awfulize kids of color and kids in poverty and just kids in general. Kids are capable of so much more than we think that they're capable of. All kids are. I think our best performing kids right now are capable of more than what they're doing right now. And we find ways to discount the system. We have all these shows about education. I rarely see people who work in education in the actual schools spend a lot of time thinking about what they can do better in terms of their systems. And there are major, major flaws in how they do many things. Teach reading, teach math, do things by grade level put kids together by age, band, whatever. But they are so quick to talk about what kids can't do. You and I have fought this for years with people on the left of, there is no story between bad test scores and poor kids of color to them. There's nothing in between those two things. They're just 100% affixed to each other. The idea that kids might be able to pass the test actually doesn't... Let's get rid of the test. Why? Because they can't possibly pass it. Well, who said? Well, we did, and we have the majority of the kids. Yeah, well, what about that, that school up the street that's doing better with those kids? Well, that, that, that school's special. They're, you know, they're doing some weird voodoo magic up in there that we can't do. Yeah. Somebody once said to me, the right overplays the power of economic mobility and the left underplays the power of mm -hmm. it. And I think mm -hmm. that's kind of where I come out, which is like, I, I believe economic mobility is a powerful driving force and a very important thing for kids to believe in. But I also think that there are major, major obstacles to exercising economic mobility in this country from going from the bottom to the top that we can't paper over. But you have to be very careful how do you talk to kids about it and educators. Because if you just say, hey, this is an insurmountable thing, then why are we even doing this, right? We do this because we believe that even though the odds are tough, 
and they're more difficult for a kid like my dad who grew up under a tree, basically doing math equations in the dirt. It was always going to be harder for him than his son in me. But the fact that his father believed it was possible was very important for him. And that's what I want from our educators. You know what I'm saying? You can never win with a dad like that. Yeah. <laughs> you can never win with a dad like that. Nothing you ever do is going to be, he, he will be able to say to you for his entire life, and I'm going to be with him. Right. I, I am for him. He's going to be like, I learned under a tree, damn it. You better go in these schools and you better excel. <laughs> to his credit, he left when I was a kid, so I never got that. So I I was able to escape all of that kind of finger wagging, but now we're close enough where it comes up every now and then. He should bring it up all the time. I should give him an old man briefing. I should like brief him on how to use things like that to his advantage. I learned to read under a tree. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the thing that parents come from hardship no matter where it is. Whether you come from North Nashville, you come from India, Nigeria, or wherever, like you come from hardship, you're going to put it on your kid's shoulders and you're going to look at your kids as soft. That's just generally how it goes. And it's, 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 it's a rite of passage in a certain way. Now, I, I would say there's one other aspect of this data in the New Jersey Ed Report piece where they talk about a, a new report from the National Council on Teacher Quality, which shows that teachers don't have adequate mastery of content knowledge themselves. And they point to certain like problems in teacher preparation requirements, including that like in order to get a general education requirement, you can either take for teaching certification, you could either use American government or sports history <laughs> as your requirement. Now, I have a problem with this data in the sense that I think training teachers is best done in the classroom. And this is in many ways, this is a good segue to our next segment. Like, yes, like being literate, you know, having certain baseline, you know, academic requirements and abilities is really important to get in the classroom, but the best learning is going to happen on the job and through apprenticeship programs and other things. And that there's like a certain, there's, there's a certain concept called just in time learning, meaning some of the best learning you do is as you're delivering it. So I'm not sure I would hang my hat on teachers, like knowing the full compendium of American history like and world history before becoming an American history teacher for a fifth grader, because I don't think it's that hard to learn fifth grade American history compared to how it is to teach American history. I think if like you're then saying to that fifth grade teacher, all right, mm -hmm. as part of teaching this, you're going to be doing a deep dive in this content area as you're building your lesson plans, et cetera, they're going to know their history. Like, like a capable person, if you ask me today, teach a fifth grade lesson next week on the constitution. I have plenty of time to learn that content. I don't need to have learned it in college, if you know what I'm saying. So that's that's what I have a problem with this day. I think it's the, a misplaced use of outrage. Mm -hmm, to be like, mm -hmm, oh my God, mm -hmm. they took sports history instead of American government. I'm like, who cares? Like if you're teaching fifth graders, you've got plenty of time to learn that stuff as you're teaching it. Well, before we transition, I will say this. This is what annoys me about this particular. So first of all, I'm really annoyed by a big part of this article that we that we read that promotes this because it's once again, people not of us talking about us once again. It, it wades into the abonics debate and gives it kind of like the standard kind of right-wing treatment. And this is their love doll. They love the whole kind of core knowledge stuff because it's their story that they think is going to be centralized for all kids. It drives me nuts because their level of like insufferable, insulated kind of right-wing opinion is something that I don't mind it as long as it doesn't affect my kids and what I can learn. Stop pushing stuff that you think is universal for everybody else. And one of those things is maybe I have a different opinion than you do about African-American vernacular English 
not Ebonics, and what the research says about that and what it says for me as a parent, for my kids, I don't need you to agree with it. I just need you to shut up and do for your own kids what you want to do for them and stop telling me what I can do for my kids. And if you're going to push something like core knowledge and talk about the science behind it, you know what else there's science behind? There's science behind ethnic studies. There's science behind the fact that many of the books that kids read are more likely to encounter an animal, a bear, or a dump truck than a kid of color. That white males are like dominant in the things that people read. And there's evidence that suggests that that makes a difference, that what kids are have accessible to them. There's also evidence that says many of these things, that these same people that are pushing this core universalized canonical type of thinking are taking off the shelves. Things like black books about black iconic people will have an impact on kids learning and their desire to learn and how relevant things are. So if you want your little white kid to go and do what you want your little white kid to do, I am so for you. I am so like, I'm your biggest supporter. (laughs) I want you to make sure that your little white kid feels totally affirmed in everything. Let them read Thomas Jefferson all day long, every day and nothing else. You know, and I'm so for that. I'll be your biggest fan. What I need you to do is stop trying to universalize and globalize what you think is good for your kid to the point that it takes things off the shelf for my kids. And we can have different understandings about Ebonics, African-American vernacular English, what should be the canon, you know, what kids should learn, what they should read. But what we shouldn't do is have people who are so kind of culturally insulated that they don't understand the limits of their own understanding mm-hmm. and that they're so pumped up and so so high on their own supply that they don't understand that this isn't for all kids. Stop arguing with us what's best for our kids when you have a long-term history of having no interest in what's best for what our kids should learn. Can I just put one book into that and say- Put a book into it, sir. I do want to leave room, and I think you agree with me on this, for the belief in the the, the sort of key background knowledge piece of this without agreeing that the people who are picking the canon should be the people picking the canon, if that makes sense. Like you could believe that having a thoughtful approach to more history, more science instruction, and having a theory as to what kind of knowledge kids have makes some sense, but you don't have to believe that and that E.D. Hirsch should be picking the curriculum. Like, I think there's some room there. Possibly. Well, I mean, you know, it might be nice to have someone on the show at some point who's really a big E.D. Hirsch person. I could think of one. Well, he never comes. Anytime you invite him, he never comes. But like, listen, if anybody listening to this, if anybody listening to this wants to come on and talk about E.D. Hirsch, I do think that a big part of what they are saying is there is some knowledge that's more universal than other which means that more people will be able to understand it and have a, a broader background. So I don't know that it's 100% like cafeteria Catholic where you get to pick which parts of the Bible you like type of thing, you know, like where you're, you know, having an infidelity here, but you're you're totally bought in over there, whatever. Anyways, so yeah, if you're listening to this, please come on the show if, you, uh, if you're all about that E.D. Hirsch life. Come on the show. We'd love to talk about it. In this next segment, we want to talk a little bit about young people making different decisions about college and specifically trading the traditional path to college in for trade schools and doing trade work. So trade programs are seeing an increase in enrollment compared to traditional four-year colleges with mechanic and repair trade programs seeing an 11.5% increase. And I'll ask you, Ravi, and others, if you guys think that 11.5% is like an increase where you go like, oh my God, that's a lot. But that's the enrollment 
increase from 21 to 22. Construction trade seeing a 19.3%. Now, aha, now this starts to feel like, you know, this starts to feel like something here. Mm -hmm. And an increase even in culinary programs, which is so great because there's like a pandemic of bad service right now in the United States and restaurants are, are the worst right now. They're terrible. So thank you, Jesus. More people are going into culinary arts programs. What do you think about this? Is this a shortcut around the big prize of getting more people through four years of college? Or is there something to be said for certificates, short-term credentials, associate degrees, and skill trades that don't bury you under an avalanche of debt, but get you into the market quickly? And and you can always go back to four-year college if you wanted to. As a matter of fact, you debunked me on this one thing. Isn't it easier to get into college after you've done two years? Like, to transfer into colleges that wouldn't let you in? Like, isn't it easier to transfer in to even places like Berkeley than it is to go straight up from the beginning? Mm -hmm. Well, it it depends on who you are. But if you have a quote unquote poor academic record or less than stellar academic record, time off really helps. If you have a great academic record, depends on what you do. Going to a community or trade college at the moment might not do it, although it should. Like I think of a kid who knows how to rebuild a car engine applies to Berkeley or a kid who was building schools in Africa or whatever on their parents' dime, I know which of those two students I would want at my school. So I'm hoping schools start to change their approach here a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting data point here is that community college enrollment is down pretty significantly over the past few years, something that we're covering on Lost Debate this week. While these trade schools are up, as you say, like at an 11.5% is probably not meeting the demand. But I think the the key is if we could sustain that growth year over year, you start to see power laws and accelerated growth, which is what we want. And I really like that they they profiled in this fortune piece, which we'll link to in the show notes, the Tennessee College of Applied Technology is a school I'm very familiar with. They're a network of 24 colleges that offer training on 70 occupations. And they profile some of these students, you know, a student who struggled with alcohol use disorder who pulled their life together and became a welder. You have students who are learning to do auto repair. And you look at the salaries for these jobs, they're really good, a lot of these jobs. And your question around, well, am I happy about the fact that these are sometimes shorter programs, credentials, et cetera? Absolutely. Like my general feeling about school is it should be as long as necessary, but no longer than necessary. Because it costs people money Mm -hmm. and opportunity Mm -hmm. if they're in, say, To become a lawyer, it takes seven years instead of what it should be, which is two years probably to become a lawyer or three years. Or to become a doctor, you have to do four years of undergrad for the most part, and then another four years of medical school, and then another four to eight years of residency and fellowship. You know, people are not making money. Which, by the way, I'm all for that. (laughs) (laughs) As somebody that wants to be a patient one day, I'm all for my doctors doing 12 years of school. But here's like part of the issue, though. My dad, for instance, we talked about my dad, in most countries you go straight into medical school out of secondary school. Now that saves people a lot of money and time to just go right into medical school. You could always make it optional to get that extra four years, but what winds up happening is if you're a doctor in this country, then you're not getting paid like the way you think of a doctor getting paid, which I think if you look at doctor wages, for example, they're actually pretty flat while a lot of other professions, like if you're selling medical devices, for ex- for example, in a lot of places you're making more than doctors. If you're part of the management of a for-profit healthcare company, even if you're middle management, you're making more than a surgeon in that hospital, for example. So like we have all sorts of problems with the economics of being a doctor, but most importantly, when they're in their residency, they're being paid next to nothing and they're working 24-7, sleep deprived, all that. And they're on like year 9, 10, 11 of their post-secondary education. That's the problem, right? Now, so if you could shave 
some years off of that, that would help, especially at a time when we have shortages of doctors. Like the, the quicker we can get these people out doing the work. It's like, I'm, I'm not sure I, I need my doctor in a like pottery class, you know, in year three, you know, <laughs> like let's get them out there learning anatomy and moving as quickly as possible through the material. I think that there could be a lot of room for further debate about the colleges that we're talking about, because I think we have an old fashioned notion of what trades are and do. I don't think that they're the same everywhere. I do think that we don't talk about them as if they need significant reform themselves. Like all these young people are going to these programs in some rural areas and places where they're as much in need of reform as any other system. Like, you know, it's not like higher ed is perfect indefinitely. Like, you know, these two-year colleges have some very strong programs in some places with workforce development departments behind them, deep partnerships with business and private industry so that you know that you're on a track to get a job. But there is a portion of this where there's a little bit of bluster in how much it's going to lead to an actual occupation, like an actual job. So I do think like, you know, it's, it's come up a lot with the for-profits mostly, I think, but it actually does affect the other schools. There's been a lot of around like needing data on what's the outcomes. What are the outcomes for? Like you have a lot of low-income people, for instance, going through CNA and phlebotomist programs. And phlebotomists, they slap the like the sweats on you or the the doctor coat type of thing and make you look like you're doing something. And you know, it's really like they should call it what it is. It's like blood taker, you know. <laughs> and it's like starvation wages. And you can also come out of programs for that to get certified in those things. Go in healthcare, for instance, where you don't make your money back necessarily. We talked about this on a previous, I think, college show where we need to start getting more specific with young people before they enter any program yeah. to tell them kind of like, let's foreshadow for you what these majors pay. Yeah. On that front, focusing on the Tennessee College of Applied Technology, one of the things I really like about this is they have a co-op program, which allows students who are, as they get closer to graduation, they start working in the field that they are intending to pursue in their career. And I think that does a couple of things that's really important. Number one is it gives them obviously hands-on experience, which I'll always take over classroom experience if I had to choose between the two. Second is it gives them exposure to the field so they make sure that this is truly what's right for them, right? Like I think like, mm -hmm. like you have a theory about what being a lawyer or being a doctor or being, in this case, an auto mechanic looks like. But if you actually are in that job, that exposure can help you decide whether to do it. And the third thing that's really helpful is they get paid for that work. So they profile a guy who goes to school by day and then works the night shift at a factory, at a local factory, and where he's a technician where he makes $26 per hour. And yeah, $26 per hour is not like the perfect wage. Stop it. What are you talking about? That's a good wage. Yeah. But what I'm saying is like, you're talking about a phlebotomist, for example. Which is more in the $7, seven fifty range. Well, that's scary. But- Working $26 for $26 an hour while you're in school in the chosen field that you have, that's a huge win. And the more that school that's is- $54,000 a year. That's good. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. I think that's above the national median. And so the more you could say, all right, I worked at the Tennessee College of Applied Technology, but I also had a job where I could either continue working for this factory, maybe during the day shift now, or- I can just use this to get another, that is a huge win and huge kudos to them and any other program that lines that kind of stuff up. It also shows a sense of humility. 
because it says, look, there's only so much we're going to be able to teach you in the classroom. At a certain point, we got to get you out there as quickly as possible. And this is as old as America is. You look at Ben Franklin. Mm -hmm. How did Ben Franklin develop as a, a media mogul that he was in the printing press? Is I think he went to go work for a relative who had a printing press, mm -hmm. right? Like this is just how mm -hmm. it used to work. It's how people used to become lawyers and doctors back in the day is they used to do apprenticeships. Yeah, it's called privilege. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's called nepotism and privilege. Uh, we can put fancy words on it, like apprenticeship, you know, like, you know, look at the interns of America. Look at America's interns, the face of the intern in America. But let's extend that privilege though now, is what I'm saying. Let's extend it. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that point. Let's make it, you know, available to all. So let me do my old man routine here. Kids don't want to work today. Kids don't. So, you know, I used to do workforce development a million years ago, and it was really funny because I think this is timely even to now. We were studying different industries that were going to need a big crop of young people to start picking and coming into those industries because they were having so many old guys leave jobs that weren't previously like left. And one of them was railroads. I remember this. So one of the community colleges entered a railroad program and those jobs were starting at 70K. And this is some years ago, but 70K a year right coming out of your program. Like, so it's like you go through the program, you're coming out and there's like, there's not even really like an inter interview situation. Like the handshake between the school and the industry was just as such that like you, your job was already kind of there if you made it all the way through. Man, you would take like high schoolers in some of the poorest places out to go see what railroad people do and thinking that like, you know, you can tell them, hey, this will be this is going to be 70K, you know, a year, right? Like your chances of earning 70K out of anything you do in the next couple of years is really small. And they were like, damn, that's dope. And then you take them out and look at what the actual work is. They're like, that's not dope. <laughs> it's like, that's the opposite of dope. Whatever dope is, that ain't it. It's like offshore rigging or Alaskan <laughs> crabbing. There are certain jobs that there's... You just have to have a certain disposition or... It lended itself to being a single guy. It lended itself to being single and like to not really having like family obligations because you're gone so long. You're like, you know, you're solitary kind of in your work or whatever. But I, I'm telling that story humorously, but it's not the only trade that we looked at. Like the, the idea that people wanted to do hands-on work was always more of a a romantic thing that people said than, than we were actually able to find people to do. There were businesses where we were just like, it doesn't look good for you. Yeah. Your future doesn't look real bright. Like there are no people coming out that are actually going to want to do HVAC as much as you want them to, or to crawl around to get dirty or get their hands dirty. And now we're talking about kids like, yeah, you know, young people want to be hands on. Mm -hmm. They want to be listen, listen, they get a little burned at Starbucks when they're making your coffee. And that's like a work, worker's comp claim. So, oh my God, here we go. Get off my line. Who's that? All right. I just want to remind you that you accuse me of being the one who's right wing on this podcast. You're talking about workers comp claims at Starbucks. I'm just putting that out there. Okay. Well, listen, let's, let's go by there again, because this article and these things that we're talking right now require work ethic. They do require that it doesn't require you just to go to school. It requires you to come out and be a worker. I live in a part of the country where people have a lot of integrity about trades. Meaning if you hire a carpenter where I live or somebody comes fix your car, fix your windows or does something in your house or whatnot, they feel worse about doing a bad job than you ever would. All right, Joe the Plumber, Mr. Middle America. Tell me this, where in America do they not have integrity about their trade? Assumed is that there are these places out there where these people who just, they get a kick out of doing a shit job. Where is that place? I just want to know as a New Yorker. Well, <laughs> let me flip it around on you and just say it this way. When I moved to where I live now, I get sticker shock every time somebody would do work for me. 
because it was so low. Like the cost of things was so mm-hmm. low. Like the cost of somebody yep. coming, spending a couple hours in your basement, making sure that your water or your pipes don't freeze or whatever. Just, uh, it always felt like, what? Like this is all you're charging? That's because I moved from a place where any of those type of calls were very expensive. It was on the second. They charged you for every little thing. These guys will run to like Home Depot and come back with parts, additional whatever. And you don't get a whole bunch of extras, whatever. They just do a good job. Mm -hmm. But that's because trades here, it's one of the main things. Mm -hmm. People take great pride in ownership, pride of ownership in their houses, pride of ownership in their lawns, all their machines work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If you have a small engine problem, somebody's going to fix it, right? Yep. What they don't have is like, now let them have like a computer problem or whatnot. And I look like, you know, Einstein at that moment, right? Like like, like anybody in the family has a computer problem. That's like totally different. I always say this to say, this is where I was going with this. It's one thing to train people and to put them through school. It's another for them to have a realistic number about attrition. How many people are actually going to get into some of these jobs and start realizing, oh yeah, for eight hours a day, I sure as hell don't want to be out in the cold or I don't want to be on my knees or I don't want to be getting dirty constantly or whatever. It's a pain in the butt or whatever. Yeah. And these industries are going to have to think constantly about like their future and how they make the jobs, I, I think, just better than they are now. Sure. And I don't know, maybe that's get off my lawn. Maybe there's a kid that went to work today. You know what? They don't. They don't. They literally don't. Are you sick of tipping everywhere you go? Ever since we did the segment on that, I have stopped tipping at coffee shops because I thought about it. I'm like, what an absurd expectation is that I'm going to buy a $3 cup of coffee, which in New York is $6. And you're going to you're going to ask me to then add another dollar or two on top of that. So every time I get a coffee, it's 8 to $10. It, just for filling up a, a cup, that's crazy. And so I can't not tip them though. I can't stop. I do. I don't. I can't. I leave really big tips. Number one, it started with the pandemic of wanting to be good to workers. I complain about them all the time, but I used to be one of them. And I do know that like a, a big tip in your day like makes your week sometimes or whatnot. So I overspend on that. But the little ones where they turn the thing kiosk around to you when you buy your coffee and they're kind of like, hey, do you want to do 15, 25, you know? 30% or whatever. You're like, you literally pressed the screen. That's what I'm saying. That's how it goes though. <laughs> the idea that they're asking that they even have the, the, the gumption to start it at 20% and have it go up to 30, sometimes more than 30% to me is, a, is like an insult. And honestly, yeah. it's coming from their bosses who don't want to pay them enough. And so they rely on the rest of us to subsidize them when we're already paying an insane amount for. But who cares about? It? I would. Well, wait. Let me. I do have one last point on this, which is. Yeah, go ahead. I do think it comes full circle, and I think at a certain point, Gen Z or Generation Alpha or whatever, it will become popular at some point to do the the manual labor jobs, to do the things that require a combination of like real intelligence and ingenuity and working with your hands. And the sort of prestige of those jobs is going to go up and up and up as AI starts to eviscerate a lot of white collar jobs. And I think plumbers, you know, car mechanics, these are some of the smartest people I know are the the plumbers, car mechanics, et cetera. They have super high IQ. The best car mechanic is going to be a genius. And I actually think that it's a kind of a cool job if you do it the right way. So you're going to start to see people in educated Gen Z and Gen Alpha gravitate more towards those jobs. Is It's just a... I have a hunch and I'm hoping I'm right. I I feel like you're probably right. I feel like when people actually start doing the work, I think about this every time when I'm in a place where it's a job I used to do. So like working in hotels, every time I stay in a hotel now, I get like flashbacks to cleaning hotel rooms. 
And I just remember like how long eight hours was. Eight hours was like the longest goddamn time like ever. You start at the beginning of your shift and you look at your watch and you're like, it's been 20 minutes. It feels like, God damn, <laughs> I feel like I grew a beard in this time. It's like, feels like it's like, it's crazy. And there was a way in which though, eventually you make peace with it in some ways and knowing that your work is going to be over when you get down at the other end and be done for the day and you could just leave it at home. Maybe that's your groove. Maybe that's your yep. thing. But I think to your point, I think it's going to become a hipster performative thing. For sure. Like lumberjacks came back, you know, like all of a sudden everybody wants to be a lumberjack, you know, like they're wearing the manly, manly colognes and, you know, like their flannels and stuff and whatever. This will become one of those things. Well, anyways. Are you a below deck guy? Have you ever watched below deck? Is that the uh, the boating show where they, yeah. they fight constantly? They just argue yeah. constantly? No, I do not. My wife watches it, but I do not. I'll just say watching below deck is very fascinating because- Why? If you've worked in service, which it sounds like you have, I have. It's the ultimate service job because you you're stuck on this boat and you basically have to do everything. And what I find fascinating about these people is it's it's really impressive this combination of service skills you have to do to work on one of these boats. Because one day you're mixing a drink, so you're a bartender, but then you're a waiter the next moment. You might be assisting the chef. You're cleaning off the boat. You're you're leading parties and programming. And I just find it, obviously the show is real, like success comes down to who's sleeping with who or whatever. I was about to say, that, there's a lot of fornication happening on that show. Yeah, but that's life. It just feels like those shows are all full, you know, they're, they're all full of like being, you know, young, like we're young, we all work together. Honestly, not enough fornication on that show, if you ask me. But I think, like, I think it's like a little bit going on, but not as much as you'd expect. But the earnest love I have of that show is that like these people are actually really impressive. Like the people who work on these boats have such an awesome combination of skills and a real sense of adaptability for like, we talk about the reputation that the younger generation has right now. It is definitely a counterpoint to that because these are people who are willing to do anything at any point and work every waking hour, you know, on the high seas, nonetheless. Kudos to them. Yeah. So before we leave, I'll say this, you know, I did a show on the eight black hands. We had Ian Rowe from American Enterprise Institute. He has a book called Agency, and it's like in it, he talks about the things that underprivileged people can do to almost virtually ensure that they won't be poor. And, you know, he talks a lot about the success sequence, which is finish high school, get a job doing anything, and don't have kids until you're married. And if you do those those few things, it's like 90-something percent. It's like some crazy number he has percentage of you won't be poor if you do those three things. Mm. And I've always been fascinated by the job doing anything. <laughs> he has a new part of this where he talks about the four things that kids need are family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. And I think that last one, entrepreneurship, there's a lot of ways to hustle and make 54000 Like you were talking about this guy, he got $26 an hour. There's a lot of ways that we don't teach kids on how to actually like win in the casino of America, mm -hmm. right? Like it brings up things for me too, like Mike Rose, dirty jobs. You know, the guy who does the mm -hmm. dirty job stuff, like all that. Yeah. Super interesting because you know what? The thing that I, my takeaway from watching all of his stuff is the dirtiest jobs is where the most money is. For sure. So if you can think of the dirtiest crap ever to do, it's where the dollars are, like literally is where the dollars are because nobody else wants to do it. 
So there you go, uh, young people watching my show. Find a job that involves poop and you're going to be a millionaire. Uh, that's a great place to end. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's the best final word, but listen. Become a gastroenterologist is what he's saying. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Something super brainy that takes 12 years and where your insurance is going to be like $400,000 a year. So your $1 million salary is like going to be what a dentist makes or something. Do that. Listen, every week we say that we care about what you guys as listeners feel about our show and you give us feedback and you send us emails and I'll tell you in a second how to send us messages, which I tell you at, at the end of every show, but we have one here and it says, hi, Chris and Ravi, what news source would you recommend for becoming more knowledgeable about issues in education specific? And this is parenthetical specific to Iowa and the Midwest as well. I want to immerse myself more in the world of education and I don't know who or what to trust for information. Well, of course, you know, start with this show, right? Cause like, you know, this is when you say, who are to trust? It's us. Uh, I don't always agree with you guys. Oh, well, there you did it. Ugh. I don't always agree with you guys, but I do enjoy how the podcast makes me think. I'm a teacher myself, so it's interesting to hear your perspectives, even if sometimes you hurt my teacher feelings, LOL. This is from McKenna <laughs> in Iowa. And McKenna, I am so sorry if we hurt your, your feelings. That is not the intention, but I love the fact that you are willing to listen to different ideas like from across the bow. In terms of sources, Ravi, I don't know what you would say. In terms of sources, and specifically, she's asking for Midwest sources as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I think like the, the best place to start is your, this is the boring part, is your local newspaper, to the extent you have one, is going to just provide a baseline like what's happening. But obviously there's bias involved and also just lack of capacity. Sometimes they don't even have an education beat reporter and the quality and earnestness of those reporters varies pretty dramatically. I, I went 20 rounds with you know, reporters from the Tennessee and in the scene over the years who I thought were mm. extremely irresponsible in their education coverage and reflected largely a very privileged white mentality from like the progressive liberal enclaves of Nashville and basically ignored everybody else's perspective. That was so racist. I keep going. Yeah. What I just said was racist, you said? <laughs> yeah, that's so <laughs> racist. That was hella racist. Like, Wait, how come you could talk about white people, but I can't? I, I don't. I don't ever do that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, all right. But um, in terms of national sources that I like, I love the 74. I think they tend to write really good stuff. I love Chalkbeat at times. I think Chalkbeat can do really good stuff. And they have a bunch of local outlets now that they've been funding, like Chalkbeat Local. And I think ProPublica has done some of the best investigative reporting nationally. Those are some of the best. And then there's just a bunch of people on Twitter. I don't really use Twitter a lot, but I think for this perspective, I've curated a list. And maybe what the branch will we'll curate a list of reporters that we like and create a list that people can follow. That's actually a good idea. Well, you know, at the beginning of the shows, every week I always say I lead a network of activists, uh, Brightbeam. Brightbeam is also the behind-the-scenes publisher of EdPost. So, of course, I'm entirely partial to EdPost as a source for news. I also am a big fan of my Apple Newsreader, set to education and parenting, and it pulls stories from me from across a lot of different places, and it routinely brings things to my attention that I would have never seen any other way. So I love having a reader where, you know, kind of AI does some of the work for me to pull from different places. I also like too that Ravi that you mentioned, you know, Chalkbeat, I think I really like for the local coverage and I like the patch for hyper local coverage. Unfortunately, I think most newspapers and many of the ed reporters locally are not up to the task of making the public smarter about their public schools, which is a problem. I think it's a crappy beat. It's a crappy news beat. 
it's generally been a feminized news beat and a young news beat after they fired all the old guys that used to do that work. And it comes with less money now, less money to actually write good stories and to stick with the story for a long time. So unfortunately, I'm not so up on local news papers as much because they don't treat the beat well, from my experience. There's also the thing is, I would say, anybody listening to me right now, please just log on and listen to some of the school board meetings of your local schools. Just make yourself do it on a weekend, like catch up on like three or four or five of the meetings and ask yourself if they're spending a lot of time talking about outcomes and talking about student achievement, which is actually the thing that they're in the business of doing. And report back to us. Maybe try this listeners and then get back to us. Let us know how it goes. We appreciate you as always. If you want to send us a message, you can send us a email message at citizenstuartshow at thebranchmedia.org, or you can leave us a voicemail message at 321-213-9171. Again, that's email at citizenstuartshow at thebranchmedia.org, or a voicemail, 321-213-9171. Thank you for listening. Share the show. Leave a review if you haven't already, and a rating. You know, we would love to hear both from you. Thank you. Thank you.